I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, July 22nd, 2014. Coming up, we talk with landscape designer Allison Peck about how to create gardens that naturally attract beneficial insects and animals and repel the pests. To attract wildlife, cultivate a healthy, diverse ecosystem, and things will generally take care of themselves. begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. The list of top endangered species may be getting a change-up after a new rating system has been developed by the conservation group EDGE, an acronym for Evolutionarily Distinct and Globally Endangered. The new EDGE ratings hope to bring a more unique set of animals to the attention of conservationists. Currently, a lot of high-cuteness factor animals like the Siberian tiger or the giant panda make it to the top of the endangered species list, since conservation groups can garner more public attention with those tear-jerkers. However, they now hope to spread the love with a bit of these uh, strange and unusual creatures that, in fact, differ so much from other species that once they are gone, there will be nothing like them left. Topping the chart as endangered and most weird is the eastern long-beaked echidna. Maybe not the most cuddly given its porcupine-like spikes and long anteater-like snout, the echidna is joined on the list by the Chinese giant salamander and the purple frog native of India, where even in abundance may be hard to spot since it spends most of its life underground. Check out some of these creatures at edgeofexistence.com. Scientists have known for a long time that deep oceans around the globe have been warming and that warming is contributing to sea level rise. A new study shows that sea levels likely will continue to rise in the tropical Pacific Ocean off the coasts of the Philippines and northeastern Australia as humans continue to alter the climate. The research was conducted by scientists at CU Boulder and Old Dominion University in Norfolk, Virginia. The scientists estimated that the ocean in these areas are being raised by about one centimeter per year. Currently, global sea level rises roughly three millimeters per year on average. Some scientists are estimating global seas may rise by a meter or more by the end of the century as a result of greenhouse warming. The authors combined sea level data going back to 1950 and fit data gathered from satellite altimeters to data from traditional tide gauges. They tried to find out how much a naturally occurring climate phenomenon called the Pacific Decadal Oscillation influences sea rise patterns in the Pacific. Benjamin Hamilton, a former CU Boulder doctoral researcher who's now at Old Dominion University, led the study. He said, the conventional wisdom has been that if the Pacific Decadal Oscillation was removed from the equation, the sea level rise in parts of the Pacific would disappear. But in fact, the team found that sea level rise off the coasts of the Philippines and northeastern Australia appear to be human-caused or anthropogenic and would continue even without this oscillation. The study was published online in the July 20th issue of Nature Climate Change.
You are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. And now for a short feature from BBC Science in Action about the response of plants when caterpillars eat them. People who talk to their plants have long been viewed as slightly, well, eccentric. Britain's Prince Charles told the BBC he not only talks to his, but he also instructs them. And many people believe it does help them grow better. Well, now new work has shown that plants definitely can hear. It's not human voices that they've been tested with, but the sounds of a caterpillar chewing leaves. Doctors Rex Cocroft and Heidi Apple, biologists at the University of Missouri, are behind the findings, and they explained how an animal communication expert and a plant specialist came to be working together on this question. I study uh, communication among insects that live on plants and which use the plants as their actual communication channel. So the insects introduce vibrations into the plants. The vibrations travel up and down through the plant stems and leaves, and then those can be picked up by other insects on the same plant. And this sounds very esoteric, but actually most of the singing insects in the world communicate that way rather than through the airborne sounds that we can detect. So I have been studying various aspects of insect communication through plants. So I was always listening to this uh, vibrational soundscape of living plants. And one of the things that I had noticed was that if I was listening to uh, a quiet communication among some group of insects um, on a plant that might be communicating about mates or about the plant itself, where's the best place to feed, or about predators, I would sometimes be interrupted by hearing a very loud, annoying, crunching sound because there was a caterpillar or a beetle larva somewhere on the plant that I wasn't aware of that would begin to feed, and this would drown out all of their conversations. And actually, we have that particular sound of a caterpillar munching on a leaf that we can play. Rex, what is it about that sound, and, and what prompted this idea of looking to see whether plants could listen into this sound too? Well, Heidi and I were were conversing when we first met about, and as scientists do, we talked about, well, what do you study and what do you study? And when I talked about the, the, this world of mechanical vibrations traveling through plants and how much information it had about the activities of the insects and the other arthropods that live on plants, and Heidi explained that her research dealt with how plants detect the presence of herbivores, how they know when they've been attacked by an herbivore and how they respond to it, the idea just emerged spontaneously out of our conversation to wonder whether plants could make use of this incredible amount of information that was traveling through their own tissues. And so because having heard incidentally the chewing vibrations of caterpillars and how loud, and at that point to me, I, they were rather obnoxious, although I've, I've since come to find them rather charming. Um, that seemed a very good place to start because these were very high amplitude vibrations as such things go. They were very distinctive and they were very relevant to the fitness of the plant. Okay, well Heidi, can you describe just briefly this latest experiment that you've just done, the one that shows that plants can actually hear and respond to this sound? Well, the first thing we did was record a series of vibrations experienced by leaves when caterpillars are feeding on them. And so then we had a feeding vibration library. And then we played back one by one those vibrations to plants that were undamaged. So there were plants in the absence of any real caterpillar. And that allows us to separate out the effects of vibration from other kinds of signals, of course, that plants have that they're wounded. And there, there are a lot of other ones as well. 
we found that when we then exposed the plants to real herbivores, that the plants that had received the feeding vibrations responded with much higher levels of two different kinds of chemical defenses. And what does that mean to you? Well, plants make chemical defenses to protect themselves against insects and other pathogens. And the fact that the plants could make more of this defense when they received the feeding vibration and not a vibration from wind or this tree hopper song meant to us that the plants had a way to selectively respond to a very important vibration in their environment. So guys, what is it that actually happens in the plants when they hear this sound? What does it do to them? It primes the plant to make more chemical defenses, both in the leaves that were attacked and in the leaves that weren't attacked. They do this by sensing the vibration in some way, and when they're later attacked by the caterpillar, they make much more. So it primes them somehow. Mm -hmm. The vibrations have served as a, as a signal that alerts the plant to the likelihood of an attack. And you might ask, well, why would this be relevant to the plant? Because when it's being attacked by a caterpillar, it indeed has the caterpillar there, the caterpillar's saliva, which the plant can perceive the damage that the caterpillar is calling as, causing, as well as the vibrations. But these vibrations travel very rapidly outwards from the site where the caterpillar is feeding to other tissues in the plant. And unlike us, where if if we were bitten by a predator on the hand, it, we wouldn't have to wonder, well, how does the rest of us know that that's occurred? Because we have the central nervous system that immediately uh, gives us that information, but plants don't have that. So one problem that plants face is when one part of the plant is attacked, how does the rest of the plant know? And the plants have a, a variety of ways of signaling throughout the plant so that the rest of the plant can become ready in the likelihood of an attack once part of the plant has been attacked. So these vibrations, we think, are important because they travel through the plant and they allow other parts of the plant that have not yet been attacked to respond more strongly in case they are attacked. The vibrations we've measured move much faster than any of the other signals that have been studied so far in plant responses. So they are likely to be one of the most reliable and evenly distributed signal that a plant can receive about imminent attack. So it's a very clever natural response of the plants that primes them to protect themselves against predators. Is there a possibility we could use this somehow for the future of crop protection? We could see this almost as some sort of pesticide. Let's just play sounds to plants in fields and, and prime them. That's certainly a possibility. It goes well beyond the research that we've done, which is basic research into plant biology. But one of the next things that we're interested in is what is it specifically that the plants are perceiving? Because it's not as simple as, oh, well, they're detecting a particular frequency of vibration because they distinguished between vibrations that were rather similar in frequency but very different in their timing. So the leafhopper song has many of the same frequencies that the chewing vibrations have, but it doesn't have this crunch, crunch, this kind of pulsing of sound. And so we don't know what it is that allowed the plants to distinguish that. But once we home in on exactly what it is that the plants are listening for, then that might allow someone to make use of that information, to play that information to plants in a way that would cause them to increase their defenses. 
Dr. Rex Cocroft there and also Dr. Heidi Apple from the University of Missouri. They're now moving on to see if other plants can hear too. And it will be interesting to learn how their work could help in the development of sustainable farming practices as that is increasingly becoming an issue around the world. Listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. Speaking of caterpillars and conscious plants, it's a time of year when our gardens are bursting with life. Whether it's tomatoes and kale in the vegetable garden or trumpet flowers and roses on the ornamental side. But you may be wondering why your neighbor's garden seems to be attracting all those butterflies and honeybees while yours is kind of attracting mostly aphids and raccoons. In fact, We can do a lot to make our gardens beautiful homes for native wildlife. And what you may think of as bad, such as wasps, can in fact be really beneficial as predators of insects you might want to rid from your garden. So biologists, landscape designers, and arborists can teach us a lot about how to foster healthy relationships between insects and plants and wild animals. One of them is in the studio. One of the humans, that is. Alison Peck is a landscape designer with degrees in physics and chemistry, and she specializes in xeriscapes, native plant landscapes and other earth-friendly landscapes. She's the owner of Matrix Gardens in Boulder. Alison, welcome to the show. Thank you. So maybe start by giving us a snapshot of some key characteristics of the earth-friendly, pollinator-friendly, yummy garden. Well, the primary thing we do when we're creating a wildlife-friendly garden is to mimic nature. And so to do that, we strive to create a diverse, uh, complex uh, landscape that has a wide variety of plants that offers food, shelter, um, water for a variety of wildlife, depending on what we want to attract or repel. (laughs) Or repel. And does it generally look... Uh, more on the wilder side than the groom side as gardens go? Uh, it can vary. Really, the key is diversity, and you can do mm. that in a wide, wide variety of ways. You can do that in a way that looks more formal. Uh, you could have a garden that's by and large fairly formal and clipped looking and leave some corners of the yard that you don't see so much uh, that could be wilder. It really depends on what uh, you enjoy. The whole idea is to get outside, enjoy nature, enjoy the wildlife that's in your garden. And I'm curious, of course, what yours looks like. Well, my yard is kind of like the shoemaker's kids. My son always (laughs) says, Mom, when are we going to have a nice landscape? (laughs) So I had an epiphany a few years ago where I realized I'm really not so much a gardener as an outdoor natural, a backyard naturalist. And so I really just love going into my yard and being part of a larger community. So much of our lives, Mm. we're in the human world and we think that that's the most important thing around us. And we can create yards that are an opportunity for us to go out into nature and be part of a community rather than being the sole director of the show. Well, I love that. So it's really about getting out and Mm -hmm. spending more time. It doesn't have to be, I mean, open space is nice we have here in Boulder, but it's really enjoying much of what you can cultivate Mm -hmm. in your own garden, Mm -hmm. right? So maybe start with... um, Pollinators. I think a lot of people know something about how important honeybees mm-hmm. are and mm-hmm. how colony collapse disorder, whatever that may right. be, we're really losing them. But so what are some of the features of a bee-friendly or actually even a three-season pollinator 
a nectar-friendly landscape? Well, of course, what bees need is nectar and pollen. So the number mm. one requirement is to, well, actually, the number one requirement is to not kill the bees. <laughs> so you have to make sure that you are really minimizing or eliminating your use of insecticides. Um, and that includes what you might use in your yard. That includes what might have been used to produce the plants that you put into your landscape. And then from there, anything that provides pollen and nectar. So a wide variety of flowers. Um, any kind of wildlife needs the same type of things we do. They need food, shelter, water, place to nest, and protection from predators. Um, really, wildlife are not so different than you and I. We all need mm -hmm. about the same thing. So to a certain extent, you can pick um, an insect, a bird, watch it, think, learn more about it, find out what it needs, and work to provide that. But in general, uh, for pollinators, you want a variety of flowers that are flowering throughout the season. So, for example, in the spring, rather than looking at the dandelion as, oh, no, that's a weed, I have to get out of my lawn, <laughs> you can look at it as, oh, that's a wonderful early uh nectar source for bees. Um, and one of the really interesting things that I've learned over time is that a lot of us are so used to looking at insects as a problem. And I really, this year in particular, been trying to see them as a resource because honestly, the insects in our gardens are the bottom of the food chain. So uh, Douglas Ptolemy uh, wrote a wonderful book about native plants and pollinators and pointed out that over 90% of all birds including things like seed-eating birds, depend on insects to raise their young. Mm. So, for example, all those aphids you see in your yard, that's a resource for all these birds that need something to eat. So for those who are going, oh, I don't want to get stung by the bees, or mm -hmm. oh, those aphids are just killing my basil and mm -hmm. everything else, what well, do you say? There's, uh, <laughs> there's a field of insect control called integrated pest management, mm -hmm. and we're lucky enough to have an incredible man up at CSU, Whitney Crenshaw, who has specialized in IPM for the state for years and years. And the whole idea is that for most insects, you can, even if you're trying to grow commercially, grow food crops commercially, there's a certain level of damage that most plants can tolerate without any problem at all. So the first thing is to really look at your yard and think, do I have some insects that are really causing problems to my plants, or is it just bothering me because it doesn't look quite as pretty as I expected? So, to? for instance, if it's taken down, I don't know, 10, 20 percent, not a big deal. Right. It starts right. to chomp the whole thing, yep. then you take more aggressive action. Right. And, and things like um, in the spring, aphids can reproduce parthenogenically, which means the females can actually create young without mating, um, and they get going pretty early. So you'll see this flush of aphids in your yard, but in most yards, if it's a healthy, established, uh, diverse neighborhood, the ladybugs will show up within a couple weeks, and the ladybugs and their little larvae that look like tiny little black and orange uh, lizards, <laughs> but only a quarter to a half an inch long, they'll come in, they'll start eating the aphids. They actually need those aphids there, or otherwise they would have nothing to eat. So it's, there's a natural cycle there, and a lot of it is just a matter of having some patience <laughs> and seeing if the natural controls will step in and take care of things. And so anything in particular to cultivate the food for, say, those ladybugs, aside from cultivating your own patients? So one of the fun things about learning about insects is that there's a whole world going on, uh, on there of predator and prey. And interestingly enough, there are a lot of native 
wasps which are predators. So there are wasps that parasitize aphids. There are wasps that will eat your cabbage worms. And a lot of those wasps are actually, um, they need flowers to, that's their food. And so cultivating a variety of um, particular plants in the umble family, like Queen Anne's lace or wild carrots, mm -hmm. those are actually great insectary plants for ladybugs, for these parasitic wasps, um, and being tolerant of the young of the predators. So, for example, everybody knows a ladybug. A lot of people don't know what the ladybug larva looks like, and that's actually what eats the most aphids. Um, if you uh -huh. want butterflies... You have to tolerate the caterpillars. That's the only way we get to the butterfly. So, for example, tomato hornworms turn into these beautiful moths called sphinx moths. They look like little hummingbirds. I have friends that actually just set aside a sacrificial tomato plant <laughs> so that the tomato hornworms can have somewhere to live. Um, so it's um, generally... <sighs> One of my favorite say sayings is from Wes Jackson from the Land Institute in Salina. And he, I don't have this exactly, but essentially he says, our ignorance vastly exceeds our knowledge. And so there's so much that happens in even a backyard. Um, and so the best thing we can do is create a very diverse ecosystem, leave some wild areas. Uh, a lot of bees are ground nesting bees. A lot of insects or a lot of reptiles and amphibians that are beneficial need wild piles of sticks and rocks to nest in. So leave some wild in your yard and be tolerant. Just watch and see what's happening rather than jumping to the conclusion that it's a problem. It's a, it's a remarkable exploration. That's great. And what about a couple examples, we just have a minute left or so, but of, of actually creating food and shelter for, for these beneficial natural wildlife? Well, for uh, pollinators, some of the best plants are plants that are in the composite family, the daisy family. A lot of those are great uh, pollen so and nectar sources. Plants that are in the legume family, which is the bean family. So alfalfa, the wild sweet peas that are all over town. Um, then if, if you want to attract things like hummingbirds, red nectar, uh, red trumpet-shaped flowers. So penstemons, uh, zafnerias are wonderful to bring them in later in the summer. Great. And then we did say a little bit about detracting the urban wildlife. Specific things you could do. I mean, some people may be happy with raccoons in their backyard. I'm not one of them. Well, They're probably the number everything in sight. <laughs> one of the number one problems is deer. And honestly, we have urban deer. You can run at them yelling. So you really, the only way to keep out deer is to fence. One other helpful thing for deer or raccoons is you can get motion detector impact sprinklers, which will activate when something moves across the field of vision. Those are highly effective to keep the raccoons off of your corn or your grapes. And uh, just one more thing, where can people go to find out more? I mean, I could see reading a whole textbook and gazillion books about this. Right. It seems daunting on the one hand and really exciting. You mentioned one. Whitney. Right. So CSU uh, Extension Service has some great fact sheets. The Xeres Society, X-E-R-E-S, um, entomologists study insects. Uh, there's a Be Safe um, movement in Boulder. They have a website that's a great resource. And I'll put these on our website when we post the show. Thank you so much, Allison, for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Allison Peck, a landscape designer specializing in xeriscape, native plant, and other earth-friendly landscapes. She's the owner of Matrix Garden in Boulder. They're at matrixgardens.com. You can also learn about national efforts to garden for habitat at the National Wildlife Federation. We'll put that on the website as well. The organization operates Certified Wildlife Habitat Program.
That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Kendra Kruger. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Lee Kwang and from Dave Willey and Friends. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.